Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Well, hello, and thanks for joining us for ASHP's podcast on medication safety, the podcast where we discuss current trends in medication safety, regulatory issues, and best practices that improve patient care. My name is Chris Baholic, and today, We will be chatting with Rick Hansen and Julie Newman about medication safety in small and rural hospitals and the nuances that small sites may experience. Medication safety can look a lot different in small and rural sites. We often see in larger institutions a dedicated individual who oversees medication safety, which is more often not the case in our smaller hospitals. In fact, In ISMP surveys, we find that about half of the hospitals that respond to our surveys do not have a dedicated individual that oversees medication safety. So Julie and Rick, I ask you both, what strategies have you used to improve the medication use process and improve safety in your small sites? Well, in the small sites, there are many things that are different, but there are some things that can be pretty universal. For instance, high alert drugs, utilizing tall man lettering, uh, independent double checks, of course, are very important, and standardized order sets whenever possible. So we actually have implemented at our critical access sister hospital to the hospital I work at in rural Montana that where they do use barcode scanning on their medication administrations. So that I think is pretty forward leaning because our larger long-term care facility here in Great Falls, Montana, has not actually extended into that. So that's something that maybe because of their size also they've been able to implement up there. And I feel like that is really kind of advanced for the site Uh, location and size and just ability to have access to information system technology resources. So another thing that we do, again, I'm part of a system. It's a small system. It's a local system in Great Falls, Montana, but we do have a small critical access hospital in Shoto, Montana, and we are able to have them scan or fax documents when they remove medications from their stock. They actually get a retrospective pharmacy review from our ambulatory site here in Great Falls that does help them to correct errors. When they sign out medications, they'll carry it through, they'll look at the orders, make sure that things match. And if they find a discrepancy, they have often been able to intervene before the uh, error reaches the patient. And if not, minimize that ongoing into the future. So I think they've done some pretty creative things that have improved safety for those patients. And some of the examples we have done to help in the small hospital, since the pharmacy is usually not open 24 hours a day in the, in the smaller hospital, and some of them may be only open eight hours a day. So we have done things like using bright fluorescent stickers on like epidural drips or insulin drips developing a standard mixture for some of these high alert medications like insulin or norepinephrine. And a lot of the nursing units will like a 
pharmacy quick reference guide for these high alert medications. So, because some of these nursing units or ERs or the ICUs may not use these, some of these uh, high alert medications or drips on a regular basis. Uh, so they have a quick reference guide that pharmacy helps them prepare, uh, that helps them with just having some reference material that's more specific to what the hospital is going to use. And guidelines, operating procedures on medication dispensing, especially when the pharmacy is not open, utilizing ASHP compounding information and patient safety to help with that, especially when the pharmacy is closed. So that really has helped out in the past. Well, you bring up some great points there, uh, Julie and Rick, and especially I think our listeners, considering that these settings may not have a pharmacy or pharmacist available more than eight hours a day. And that, that is quite a difference um, from other hospital health system settings. So along the same topic, what are some of the barriers that smaller sites might encounter related to medication safety? And uh, Rick and Julie, what have you done to try and overcome those barriers? A good question. The bigger hospitals, since they have more pharmacy on site 24 hours a day, they can, they can assist the nursing units with these high alert dispensing and administration. But if we don't have pharmacy available on site, we have to come up with alternative plans. I mean, we can have override criteria for the automatic dispensing cabinets, and especially for the high alert medications and independent double checks. But sometimes you don't have a second person available to do that independent double check. So you may have to have that independent check with uh, a physician or maybe a nurse's um, medical assistant uh, that can help that nurse out just to have another set of eyes whereas maybe the bigger hospital would have another RN. Uh, we don't have that luxury. And then because the pharmacy is closed, you got the compounding uh, that occurs after hours when the pharmacy is closed. Uh, so the pharmacy can assist with that with, with more detailed training and sign off on the nurses for their compounding competency uh, so that they were more comfortable doing that immediate use compounding when the pharmacy is closed. Another challenge for the critical access type hospital, especially in like remote areas of Montana, and even our larger site in Montana is the remoteness of our location and when it comes to drug shortages. So that's another kind of unique situation where we may not have as much access to other facilities as far as um, moving inventory around within a system. If you have several hospitals in a certain, in a close proximity, we don't have that luxury here. So uh, things have to be a little different on how we manage those, I imagine, um, just with having limited resources for gaining supply. So just, I'm sure that's also similar in larger institutions where you're trying to conserve your supply and uh, utilize different agents when you can to conserve supplies when you don't have another choice given the patient's condition. And if that's the drug that is required uh, in that particular instance. So that's what we spend a lot of time doing is 
kind of centralizing our supply, being very focused on how we dispense those medications that are hard to come by. An example would be like the dextrose shortage at the moment and, you know, really trying to conserve that supply for our hypoglycemic patients. So if maybe we have a hyperkalemia patient, we might use a D10 to 50 mil bag in those instances to keep our dextrose syringes available for those quicker turnaround for our hypoglycemic patients. Also, there are errors that, of course, can occur due to just drug shortages. Um, there's Presidex mixed in NS versus D5, and sometimes misfills happen in the, in the ABCs, and those errors have been caught, luckily, with the bedside scanning. So just things to keep in mind. We've also had to switch concentrations and vial sizes of electrolytes. Really, the concentration differences are something that we have to watch out for, especially if we have both strengths in our inventory. Obviously, trying to remove one and decide on which strength you're going to use for that period of time rather than utilizing both strengths at the same time. Try to avoid that situation, but when it came to sodium chloride, we didn't have a choice. We had to move from four milliequivalent per mil to two and a half milliequivalent per mil. So therefore, we have to be sure that our order strings and our order sets are edited to match the concentrations we're using to minimize errors that happen because of those kinds of things. So just a little bit different in the fact that we don't have other facilities within sometimes a 50 to 100 mile radius to share supply with. Another area is handling of hazardous medications. The smaller hospital has resources that are challenging to, uh, to obtain. They may have a biological safety cabinet to mix uh, chemotherapy in, but they may not have the facilities with the proper air handling to, uh, to, to address the negative pressure they need in that chemo room or the proper air exchanges. Um, the hood may pass inspection or uh, certification, uh, but then they don't have the certification for the room because it's not the right number of air handling or air exchanges and the, and the pressure in the room. So these are challenges that the small hospital has because of the funding and they may need to replace an air handler. They may need to add additional airflow to that pharmacy area to, to provide the negative pressure in the room that they need. And they may not have room to store the chemo drugs in a negative pressure room that's required by USP 800. Um, so the staff, you know, there's lots of knowledge that they need in that USP 800. So to get them educated, the staff needs to be educated on what is required. And along with that education is educating the plant operations people on what is required to maintain that negative pressure and to maintain the air exchanges in that room. And then just also along the lines of, you know, the ability to staff a people dedicated to medication safety. There's large organizations that have whole medication safety teams that are dedicated to just ensuring that all your regulatory uh, reporting and quality things are kind of in line and 
smaller institutions obviously don't have the ability to dedicate that type of FTEs to that. So sometimes, you know, often they do have a person responsible, but that's not their primary role. So that makes, of course, prioritization of tasks much more important, keeping the medication safety a priority. Even in my institution, I am just transitioning into medication safety specialist role. I still do quite a bit of staffing. That's been a challenge. So as far as being completely dedicated, haven't quite gotten there yet. But several years ago, I just even started with a multidisciplinary committee um, that meets monthly and at least create the goals and metrics and from there create a dashboard. And that just really helps with the prioritization of what you know, you are able to accomplish and what you must accomplish. So I guess that is kind of some advice I would have on how to improve a current process where you might not have dedicated FTEs is to, there are plenty of other disciplines I think that should be involved and those people can join in the committee. We both have offered some creative solutions for practitioners that might be in the small or rural setting, um, especially I like Rick it, employing other practitioner types for those independent double checks. And Julie, you know, your approach to medication safety, still trying to get to that dedicated professional. Um, but staffing does seem to be a common problem that organizations are facing. Um, in particular now, we've had staffing issues in the past, um, but right now it seems to really be more of an acute issue. Is this true for the small and rural sites as well? So in visiting with our critical access site, they actually don't have a staffing problem as far as they're able to maintain the staffs that they need. Obviously, they don't have certain staffing because their budget just doesn't allow. But as far as, you know, them with open positions, that is not something that they are facing. And that just might be, you know, it's a rural setting. It's a uh, high demand job, good jobs in a small town. So luckily for them, they are not facing that. The facility I work in, of course, we do have um, those open positions and that are hard to fill. So we do have... Uh, staffing troubles as well. And maybe Rick can chime in on what his experience is. Yeah, especially during the uh, times when staff are calling in sick for whatever reason. Uh, you know, in a smaller hospital, the technician staff you have are very limited and the pharmacist staff is even more limited. Uh, so if a pharmacist calls off, you may have to call in another pharmacist from home. There may, may be the only pharmacist there for the day. And the same with the technician staff, you know, it could be 50 or 60 or 75% of your staff just for one person to be off. So it's a significant challenge if someone is ill and, and they're out of work for more than a day or two uh, to get the work done, and especially some of these monthly duties like uh, outdates and uh, unit inspections and and keeping up on the stockouts uh, in the pharmacy. Yes, and I think, you know, it also could be in those sites where you have less people even to begin with and you lose maybe 50% of your staff with a sick call that an issue that 
again, Rick has already touched base on would be that double check, you know, less access to uh, that independent double check, maybe when you need it. So I liked his idea of, yeah, employing those other disciplines. But if unable to do that, I think that's really when we have to remind ourselves of our self-checking techniques and stopping thinking before we act and then kind of review before we finalize what we're working on. So uh, that's one issue that I think might come up with the smaller institutions and a staffing problem. And looking also at recruiting of technicians and pharmacists, the small hospital can use uh, schools um, and these technical programs for training of technicians to bring these in for, for their experience, experiential part. And this is a good way for your recruitment for future pharmacists and future technicians. Uh, pharmacy students uh, can work in the hospital, in the smaller hospital, uh, and get their credit for their uh, rotations of their P3 and P4 years. And pharmacy technician training programs are always looking for hospital pharmacy experience. And this is another good way to, to check out stu future students for future job openings. Definitely. Here at Benefis, we do partner with a university, the University of Providence here in Great Falls, and they actually have a pharmacy technician program. So we do offer a scholarship to a student to enter that program with a work commitment. So that's something we have done to help our technician staffing and really getting them a great training experience as well. Wow, I really love those ideas. I love the student idea. I love the the offer of the scholarship. That's that's really great. That's great pearls of wisdom for our audience. So I'd like to take a little bit of a turn and challenge you to think about the ISMP best practices. Uh, these targeted medication safety best practices, um, we've been putting them out there as a target for practitioners to address since 2014. And um, last year, we had a couple new ones that we added. Um, you might recall around safety with high alert medications and use of the drug oxytocin. Rick and Julie, can you give our listeners some perspectives from the small and rural hospital standpoint on implementing ISMP's best practices. Yes, high alert drug compounding. Uh, this has been around with ISMP for, uh, for a while now. And it's a challenge because of the, uh, the equipment, I think that's needed. Um, some of the smaller hospitals uh, are starting to partner with the larger institutions to be able to get that funding to help with uh, getting uh, like a, a camera in the IV hood to use for like a mid-prep check to assist with uh, checking the drawn-up drug before it's uh, injected into a bag by the technician. The pharmacist can do this remote without having to enter the IV room, which also enter, you know, is a complication of people in and out of the room uh, to contaminate the room. Uh, so I think now that we're seeing IV cameras are available, uh, the costs have come down, and to use these to document uh, the pharmacist uh, checking the product before it's injected and before the final check, I think is a great uh, tool that's coming out available to the smaller hospitals. 
Definitely. And the advantage, you know, obviously for the safety of proper mixture and those types of systems is enough of a reason, but it also is very helpful in um, investigation of events, you know, having the ability to have that, those images stored and all lot numbers, expiration dates, um, time stamping of when things were processed and done. That's just a very additional benefits to just making the other parts of medication safety it just helps to improve, I guess, how you are able to respond to error events and maybe learn more uh, because you have more access to more information. And then best practice on oxytocin compounding. Many of the hospitals or the smaller hospitals uh, being closed at night uh, in the pharmacy, um, they have to come up with some standardized approach uh, to make this a more safer use of the drug oxytocin. I was at a facility that was had a 10 unit per liter bag of oxytocin for induction. And then post-delivery, they would go with a 20 unit in a liter bag. And most of the time, this was mixed by the nurses on the nursing unit as immediate use compounding. Uh, so you can uh, realize the potential safety issues with that. Um, so what we did was we had literature search and educated the physicians and the nurses to come up with one standard mixture to use for the induction and the postpartum and have that available in the nursing unit so there was no admixture by the nurses at any time of the day. So this was a big improvement in prevention of any mixing errors or errors that could cause harm to the patient with this very potent drug. Definitely, yes. We have utilized a standard concentration for as long as I've been at the hospital. I'm in for oxytocin, so this is something that we feel pretty comfortable as far as meeting uh, this best practice. But yes, very. there was a time where they would want to add oxytocin to premix bags, so we had some work to do to correct that behavior, but everyone has been on board with uh, standard concentration. We utilize uh, premixed bags. Uh, we actually from a compounding pharmacy. And then if our supply runs short on those, we will per 797 um, requirements, make our own premixed bags to stock um, on the floors as well. So that it's readily available and no one needs to do any ad mixing on the floor. Well, we've had some great discussion today. I think you both have given our listeners a lot of food for thought for navigating medication safety and ISMP's best practices in the small and rural hospital setting. Um, I want to thank you both so much, Rick and Julie, for joining us to discuss medication safety topics in this setting. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks, Chris, for being the host. So to our listeners, if you haven't before, I do encourage you all to check out ASHP's medication safety resources. You can find a member-exclusive offerings such as the Patient Safety Resource Center, patient education resources through safemedication.com, and you can exchange ideas and ask questions with your peers on the ASHP Medication Safety Connect community. Thanks again for tuning in for this episode of ASHP's podcast on medication safety. 
And be sure to subscribe to the official ASHP podcast for more on medication safety and other practice topics important to the pharmacy workforce. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official. Thank you.